Father God, you are great. And when we sing a song, a hymn, of someone who has lost just about everything, but keeps their eyes on Jesus, your son, it inspires us. And how right that is. You are worthy of worship when things are going well. You are worthy of worship when things are not. If we know your son, you have given us a future. You have given us a hope. You have given us eternity. You have cleansed us. And we have a heaven to look forward to, not made with human hands. No matter how bad things are here, we look forward to that day. And Father, as we look at your word, yet another text on a situation that is difficult, darkness, where people keep their eyes on you in the midst of darkness, may we be inspired to do likewise. Guide our time, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. You might have heard of Dr. Gardner Taylor. If you know the name, you know that he's an African-American who grew up in the early part of the 20th century. He was a son of freed slaves, excuse me, a grandson of freed slaves. He was a man who grew up in segregated America. He went off to Oberlin College and got a Bible degree. In American Baptist circles, he is called the Prince of Preachers. He was a confidant of the King's family during the Civil Rights Movement. He pastored in Ohio and then two churches in Louisiana. And then he went to Brooklyn where he pastored the Concord Baptist Church in Christ for 42 years until his retirement at age 72 in 1990. In 2000, he was given the Presidential Medal of Freedom. He has 15 honorary degrees, hence the title doctor. But I want to talk to you about an event that took place in his life during the Great Depression from 1929 to 1939. He was in an African-American community, a very impoverished one, in Louisiana. And in this particular church, they had exactly one light, one light bulb. And it was in the sanctuary that had no windows. And he was waxing eloquent, or at least he thought he was. We pastors kind of think that from time to time. And he was waxing eloquent, and suddenly the one bulb went black. What do you do when you have notes, and the room is pitch black, it's darkness, how do you even proceed? And so he did what I think I would do, he froze. And there was silence for an awkward amount of time, until finally an elderly deacon in the back yelled out, Keep on preaching, preacher! We can see Jesus in the dark. And the question I want to ask is this. Can you? Do you? Do I? 
Do we see Jesus in the dark? Can we see Jesus in the difficult times of our lives, the trials, the tempests, the difficult situations? Do we keep our eyes focused on Jesus? Are we looking at Jesus? Are we focusing on Jesus in the darkness? Elijah kept his eyes on his coming Redeemer in the darkness. The widow of Zarephath, she kept her eyes on Jesus in the darkness. Are we keeping our eyes on Jesus? I want to pick up in our text and read from 1 Kings 17. We'll read verses 8 to 16. Then the word of the Lord came to him, that is Elijah. Arise, go to Zarephath which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives. I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said. But first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward make me something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty. According to the word of the Lord, that he spoke by Elijah. I want us to consider our setting once again. Israel has a new king. He's evil. His name is Ahab. And Ahab takes a princess from Phoenicia, Jezebel, and he marries her. And you remember that Jezebel moves to Israel and she comes bags, baggage, and Baals. And you remember that Baal is the false god of weather, and that Baal has a counterpart, a consort, uh, a false goddess named Asherah. And if you go to a temple of Baal or Asherah, there will be temple priestesses who are prostitutes, and the men would engage in immoral, fertile acts in order to entice the god and goddess to bring fertility on the land, to send sun, to send rain, to give a bumper crop. And in such an immoral situation, God sends a new prophet, a prophet named Elijah. And Elijah gets his opportunity to have a public ministry, and he's got one sentence. Essentially, he says, as the Lord of God lives, it shall not rain or have dew on the land, except at my word. One sentence. 
God said, go preach one sentence. By the way, just want you to know, God has never told me to preach one sentence. So go ahead and get comfortable, because it might be a while. And so he begins to preach. And you remember that after the one sentence, God sidelined him. He left Gilead. He finally escapes Gilead, hillbilly country. God sends him back to Gilead. And he's there for an entire year. It's an entire year where unclean birds, ravens come in the morning and in the evening. They bring bread and they bring meat. The only thing going on at the brook Cherith is he's got a brook of Brita water and he gets to drink to his heart's content. But after 12 months, you remember God dries the brook up. And there's something in us that says unfair. How is it fair? That God gives us something and then allows that thing to be taken from us. But of course, the question itself is all about entitlement Christianity. As though God somehow owes us something. That if God gives us something, he has no right to allow it to be taken from us. Or if God gives something to someone else, we're entitled to that as well. And entitlement Christianity, although rampant, is wrong Christianity. The right response when the brook Cherith dries up is to praise God for the 12 months that we had the Brita water. That's the right response. The right response when our health goes is to praise God for the years that we had good health. Or when we lose something, to praise God for the time that we had it. That's the right response to God. And so he loses something. And God, in typical God fashion, says, I, I took it away. But I've got something else for you. I want you to go to Zarephath. Now everything about that just seems wrong. Can you really see Jesus in the darkness of Zarephath? Can you keep your eyes on Jesus in Zarephath? It doesn't seem right that God sends him to Zarephath. Now think about it. It's about 125 miles away from Gilead to Zarephath across one of the most impenetrable deserts in the world. It would be an impossible trek today we're going back 30 centuries in the middle of a drought. And God says, I gave you the brook. The Brita water was good. I dried it up. Now I want you to travel 115 to 125 miles across the desert to Zarephath. And by the way, Zarephath isn't in Israel. He's a prophet to the northern tribes in Israel. But this is 14 miles south of Tyre. So God is taking him out of the country to Zarephath. In fact, he's taking him to Sidon. We've heard that word before, haven't we? Sidon. Where did we hear it? Well, that's in Phoenicia. That's where Jezebel's from. He's a prophet of Yahweh. The center of Baal worship is in Sidon. He is a prophet of Yahweh who has thrown the gauntlet down and said Baal and Asherah are not real. And this 
This false god of weather does not control the skies. And it will not rain, and it will not do on the land, except at my word. We're 12 months in. We've got 24 months to go, 36 months. He's thrown down the gauntlet. He's declared that Baal is not real. And God sends him out of Israel, 125 miles across the desert, to the backyard of Baal. If you come to Wausau, you see that beautiful sign that says, Welcome to Wausau. They probably said, Welcome to the country of Baal. And that's where God sent him. Can you really see Jesus in the darkness of Baal? You can imagine that Jezebel has his picture on every most wanted poster. You go into the post office, you read the top ten, he's number one. His life isn't worth the paper that his picture is printed on. She wants him dead or alive. And God sends him to Zarephath to be in the care of a widow. It's pitiful. It's pitiful. If there is someone... 30 centuries ago in the Middle East that doesn't have a chance to live. It's a widow. There's only one thing worse. A widow with an at-home child. Now she can't even work. There is no hope. And God sends his prophet into the teeth of Baal country, the one that he has declared is not God. Being a most wanted man, now in the care of a widow. It's it's pitiful. Can you see God in such darkness? And yet you remember, he sees a widow. Very easy. They have distinctive clothing. He recognizes her. And the Hebrew is a little softer than the English. He says, can I have a little morsel of bread? Can I have a little cup of water. We're in the middle of a drought. Can I have just a, just a little bit? And she says, I'm gathering, I'm gathering sticks. My son and I are going to have our last meal. And we're about to die. And he says, yeah. But God will provide. By the way, uh, I like my biscuit warm. And I like it first. Because God likes his first fruits first. And you can trust me. Give God the first fruits and you can trust me. Let me read verses 14 to 16 again. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, the jug of oil shall not be empty, until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and he and her household ate for many days, almost 900. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. With death at her door, she trusted in Yahweh. And she gave him. What a woman to emulate. One author, I suppose a bit tongue-in-cheek, 
said he can picture at the counter a little bit of flour, a little bit of oil, kneading it, singing that great doxology, praise God from whom all biscuits flow. And she made the biscuit, and she exhibited incredible faith. Indeed, in Sidon, there was a proverbial saying that said this, Baal will fill the wadis with oil. He'll fill the rivers with honey. And Baal, who is the mythical offspring of Dagon, which means corn, a false Canaanite god, they will bring corn and flour. But there is no honey. There is no oil. There is no corn. There is no flour. And so she forsakes what she has been brought up in, and she looks to the Redeemer in the midst of the darkness. Because you can see Jesus in darkness. With our remaining time, I want to make three observations. I want to tell you right off the bat that the first observation I could never have made. I would never have seen it. I would say you would never have seen this first observation, but it's the one I'm most confident in. Because Jesus made it. Jesus on a Sabbath in Luke chapter 4 decided to use 1 Kings 17 as his text. Let me read a little bit of it. Luke 4, I'll read verses 24 to 26. He's preaching in Capernaum. He's basically preaching in his own backyard. He said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. He's referring to himself. They're rejecting him in his own town. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them. That is, there's lots of widows, lots of Jewish widows, and Elijah didn't go to any of them. He wasn't sent to any of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, and to a woman who was a widow. Now, if you remember the rest of the account, he continues, he goes from Elijah to his counterpart, Elisha. And he said, Elijah had a similar experience to Elijah. He wasn't sent to a widow, he was sent to a leper. And there were lots of Jewish lepers, but he wasn't sent to any of them. He was sent to Syria to Naaman to heal a Syrian leper, but he wasn't sent to heal a Jewish leper. And you remember the response. They were so angry with Jesus, they drove him from the synagogue, they drove him up a hill to a cliff to throw him off the cliff to his earthly death, and God confused them, and Jesus walked away. Why? Because they understood exactly what Jesus was saying. He was saying that in the days of Elijah, in the days of Elisha, there were all these Jewish widows and none of them were spiritually ripe. There were all these Jewish lepers and none of them saw that they had a serious problem, more serious than their outward leprosy. They had inward leprosy. And because they were not ripe for the gospel, 
because they were resistant to the gospel, because they somehow did not recognize that they were destitute like a widow, that they were sick through and through like a leper, Jesus did what he tells us to do. He wiped the dust off his feet and went from less fertile soil to more fertile soil, and he proclaimed truth. That's what was going on. Elijah and Elisha realized that the Jews were less fertile spiritually at that time. Now we know from Romans 9 to 11, they'll be regrafted in. That's a prophecy, it's coming. But at that time, they were less fertile. And so God sent his prophets, both top five prophets, outside the country to find fertile people. What was true 30 centuries ago is still true today. Unless you and I recognize how destitute we are spiritually, unless we recognize that we are spiritual lepers that cannot save ourselves in utter need of a Savior, in utter need to fall upon the grace and the mercy of Jesus, to accept his death as a payment of our sin, his resurrection as life after the grave and evidence of it. Unless we believe in Jesus, unless we look through the darkness and keep our eyes on Jesus and receive Jesus, then he's going to wipe the dust off his feet and go to a more fertile place. There is no guarantee that anyone in this room will hear the gospel again. No guarantee. There is no guarantee that in an hour, anyone in this room will be alive. Probably we will, maybe we won't. No guarantee. And so, he's brought the gospel to us. Have you prayed and received Christ? Have you believed in Christ as Savior? Before we move from this first application, just a couple thoughts. First, I got to tell you, I'm a little thankful that this happened to Jesus. Because nobody has yet tried to throw me from a cliff. And a servant is not greater than his master. It might be coming. Sometimes I get some unpleasant emails or notes. Occasionally a call. But nobody has tried to throw me from a cliff yet. So things aren't all that bad. The second thing I want us to notice is this. The message was right. We know that Jesus gave the message. It was perfect. And yet the response was wrong. And Jesus said, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We have the right message, but the response still may be violent. The response still may be negative. Just because society may not want the message doesn't mean that the message is wrong. We are still to give the message. As dark as society may get, we need to keep our eyes on Jesus. We can still see Jesus in the darkness. Keep your focus on Jesus. The second application I see is this. God often molds us into what he desires us to be. At the brook Cherith, 
at the Zarephath. He takes time, but he molds us. Another way to put it is, sometimes God puts us in a crucible. A crucible may be made out of ceramic and you put some metal in it and you heat it up and it gets really, really hot until the metal is moldable and then the artist shapes the metal the way that the artist wants the metal to be. God does that. Sometimes he puts us in a crucible. Sometimes unpleasant things happen to our to our lives and in our lives so that God shapes us and molds us so that the potter molds the clay, we are the clay, into what he desires us to be. You know what the word Zarephath means? It actually means crucible. That's not an accident. God put the widow in a city named Crucible because she needed to be shaped And even more so, God's prophet Elijah needed to be shaped. And sometimes we find ourselves in a crucible. And we ask, why God? Why are you allowing this? And maybe, likely, he allows it to shape us and mold us. To make us more and more into his image. That we keep our eyes on Jesus in the midst of the darkness. I don't like my illustration. If I had been able to think of another one, I was committed to not share my illustration. It's a little crucible. It's like a bump. Some of you have huge crucibles in your life. And my heart goes out to you. Some of you are in real trials and tribulations. And and all I could think of was this little little, tiny bump. It's, it's, It's small. Late last summer, uh, I went to my rock star uh, dermatologist. She's a, she does skin cancer stuff. And I already knew I had cancer. In fact, I went in there very cocky and said, I got 14 sites. Uh, it turned out I had more than that, but uh, I, I knew I had it. I I'd had skin cancer since I was 22. Little bits, but this was more than normal. And... Uh, Turns out about a half a dozen of them were on my face or my neck and then a little bit on my, my hands and my arms and wrist and my legs and my ankle. And if you have skin cancer, you know that there's A, B, or C. There's three options. There's probably more than that, but that's all I know. A, you love that when they burn it off. Just get it off. That's great. B, they scrape it off. I don't really mind that one either. C, I hate they cut it out. And it looks like this tiny little thing. And, and the incision is like, all right, it's not that big. It's like that big. But it feels like it's this big. It feels huge. And I always say, Lord, I like option D. You just heal me. And he doesn't do option D. And so we had some burned off and a few scraped off and a few cut out. And, and then we decided we would use a, a little bit of a, a chemotherapy cream. So I started Christmas Day. And I guess for some people, this is very painful. I can tell you it really was not. Uh, but I wore long sleeve shirts like I did this morning for about three months because I had all these sores all over my arms and I didn't want people to see all the sores. In fact, frankly, uh, I almost wore like a muscle shirt so you could see my battle scars <laughs> because they really didn't hurt. But they looked like I was a tough guy. 
tiny, tiny little crucible. And you could say, Lord, it's not fair that you gave me really white skin. Or you can look to Jesus and say, man, thank the Lord for a doctor who can remove it. Thank the Lord for good health. Thank the Lord for a little bit of chemotherapy cream. And you can keep your eyes on Jesus. And some of you are in very big crucibles. And my heart goes out to you. But keep your eyes on Jesus. You can still see Jesus in the darkness. And he's got a plan and he's got a purpose. I don't know what it is. But he can use it. He can use the crucible for us to be more and more dependent upon the Lord. Finally, God's provision in the crucible is generally just enough. It's not all that we would like. It's often just enough. Can you imagine what it was like for Elijah to go to the widow at Zarephath? And God said, the oil will not run out, and the flour will not run out. And you say, what are you having for breakfast today? A biscuit. What are you having lunch today? A biscuit. What are you having for dinner today? A biscuit. Tomorrow during the NCAA championship, when you nibble, what are you going to nibble? A biscuit. It's kind of like the Jews in the wilderness. They had banana bread and manicotti and all things manna, and they got tired of manna. They did. And God doesn't always give us what we want, but he gives us what we need. And what we needed, what Elijah needed, what the widow needed, was a biscuit. And so God gave a biscuit. And it's very easy for us to look around and say somebody else has a better biscuit than I do. It's not fair. Somebody else's apartment is better than mine. Somebody else's house is nicer than mine. Somebody else's car is better than mine. Somebody else's job is better than mine. And we can always, no matter who you are, we can always find somebody who has something better than us. It's inevitable. Or we can live a life of gratitude rather than entitlement. And say, Lord, thank you for the biscuit that you provided. I think of a little boy, I'll call him Jeremy. Jeremy had a birthday. And his Aunt Mabel, he loved Aunt Mabel, she sent a present. She wasn't there, but she sent a present. And it was, it was a great present. And a couple days later, Jeremy's mother came to him and said, I want you to walk a couple blocks over to Aunt Mabel's house. And I want you to thank Aunt Mabel for that present. He kind of groused about it. But he did, and he walked over, knocked on the door. Aunt Mabel opened it. He said, thanks, Aunt Mabel, for the present. And she kind of gushed, and she said, oh, you didn't need to walk a couple blocks to tell me that. He said, I know, I told my mom that. <laughs> and I don't want to do that with God. I don't want to do that with God. It's really easy. To see that somebody else is something else or better. And rather than keeping my eyes on Jesus in the light, in the darkness. Rather than even in a crucible saying, Lord, what are you going to teach me? How am I going to be more dependent on you? In the middle of that, we start looking, oh, 
that's not fair. Oh, I, I need that. And we have a sense of entitlement. The text tells us no entitlement. Keep your eyes on Jesus. In the light, keep your eyes on Jesus. In the crucible, keep your eyes on Jesus. In the darkness, keep your eyes on Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, uh, we do want we do want to keep our eyes on you. We want nothing to do with an entitlement sense of Christianity that somehow wrongly thinks you owe us, that fails to thank you for your provisions and even occasionally the crucible. And Father, my heart goes out to those who are in the crucible. Allow it to be beneficial, to be short, and for you to give strength, to endure. And Father, as you mold us, allow us to keep our eyes on your Son. In the good times and in the darkness, allow us to keep our eyes on your Son. Because we can see Jesus, even in the darkness. Allow that to be true. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.